of those that are useless in ministry, and, and Paul's actually going to call out two particular individuals who appear to be leading the charge that's either in the local church or around the local church that's enticing people who are useful for ministry to, to begin to become useless in ministry. And then our very last portion, Paul is going to give us this metaphor, this incredible metaphor that gives us hope this morning. But as we look at this first portion, again, as we look at this first portion, I'm going to read 14 through 19. And what I want you to, to, to have in your mind as you listen to it, that if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with a pew Bible in front of you. But I want you to ask yourself, am I right now useful for ministry? Is there areas in my, my life that are impacting my usefulness for ministry? So that's the first question I want you to sit with, because what's going to happen in 20 and 21, we have hope. This picture that however you came into the room this morning, you can leave more useful for the ministry purposes that God has called us to accomplish with our relationships and responsibilities for the glory of God. So let me read for us verse 14 through 19 as we're going to notice first that useless vessels, they will fail to fulfill the ministry before them. Useless vessels will fail to fulfill the ministry before them. 14 through 19 from the ESV. And Paul says to Timothy, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel, not to fight about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent, this unholy babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene, this, this disease that, that spreads and numbs and, and kills. Among them, and he calls these two individuals out, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. So we get an insight into the false teaching that they're propagating. They are, ups, they are upsetting the faith of some, verse 19, but God's firm foundation, it stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Again, first and foremost, so these two key qualities, these two key principles in our text this morning, that un, un, useless vessels, they will fail to fulfill the ministry before them. Useless vessels... They will fail to fulfill the ministry before them. Again, what determines the usefulness of it is what the task is at hand. The task, the purpose, is what establishes the usefulness of it. So I might say, hey, this, this pulpit is just wonderful for preaching and holding my, my Bible and my notes, but it's not very good if I have to get across town in three minutes, right? It's not actually nothing as good if you have to get across town in three minutes, but it's not going to fulfill that purpose of traveling. I, I can't get on this and ride somewhere else. It wasn't designed for that. Useless vessels will fail to fulfill the ministry before them. How so? He gives us two insights. How so? First and foremost, they'll choose quarrels rather than Christ. They will choose quarrels rather than Christ. Now, I want to I clarify this. this so, so he says in really two particular ways, not to quarrel about words, or maybe your translation says to battle or fight about words. And this is confusing at first sound, so I want to unpack this for us. What Paul is giving to Timothy is a character sketch 
He's giving a profile of actual people, the actual church at Ephesus, and they find themselves at churches everywhere in several of his different letters that fit a particular description. And he's going to call out their names. We already saw he calls out two of these individuals by names. But the warning in the picture of the text is that these individuals fight about words. Now, if you remember in previous sermons we've looked at, there are things that you and I are called to lay down our lives for, that we ought to fight about those words. The picture of these individuals is that they are by nature quarrelsome. They will fight about anything. And not just about anything, but particularly the church. The picture of these individuals, these, these troublemakers, is that they are like blind arsonists running through a church body with, with flames in their hands, not caring who they burn. They're simply quarrelsome. They'll quarrel about any word they can possibly get their hand on. They're divisive by nature. And not only by nature, but they're divisive against the essentials. Part of being a member, part of what we stand on at Grace Bible is that we believe that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. That he physically ascended into heaven and he will indeed come again one day bodily. And we who are alive right now and those who have already died believing in Christ, they will be raised bodily. And we will worship Christ for all eternity and do his will for all eternity free from temptation and sin and death. It's those things that these individuals are quarrelsome about. Nothing is off the table. It's their nature. It's the profile sketch. They're quarrelsome by nature. Hymenaeus and Philetus, he calls them out. I won't make you look there, but you can write down 1 Timothy 1.20 if you're a note taker. Hymenaeus is mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20 with this other character, Alexander. They were already doing this false teaching when, when Paul first wrote to Timothy warning him. They're already teaching these false things. And Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Kick them out of the local church body. Call them out. Don't be afraid. Call them out. But it appears that it didn't work. Either, either he didn't kick them out or they kicked him out, but they're still trying to pick off the congregation. And he warns them again, just like he did back in chapter 1, verse 15 of 2 Timothy. You can look back there with your eyes real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Do you remember this? Remember Paul's writing about his chains that he's in, his suffering that he's enduring, and he says, you are aware that all those in Asia, that's present-day Turkey, they turned away from me, and among them are Phagellus and Hermogenes. And what Paul is doing in a very similar way is he says, listen, you've seen how these two men impacted the entire Christian fellowship in Turkey to the point that they don't want anything to do with me. These two men that are in Ephesus where you're leading, Timothy, you better take it serious. Because they'll do the same thing there. They're quarrelsome about words and about essentials. Take it serious. If you don't take it serious, Ephesus may very well one day cut you off as well and cut off the sound teaching of the gospel. Wherever the gospel is preached, 
counterfeits will always be near. We must never get to a point in our lives where we think, okay, we've got it made, we've arrived, either as a church or as a, as a family or as a Christian, to think false teaching won't find its way popping up like a little whack-a-mole game everywhere, left and right, and here it comes. We have to constantly prepare ourselves. This is Satan's tactics. Where there is authentic gospel teaching and Bible teaching, there will soon be false teaching. There will be counterfeits that will pop up left and right in your home. If you're in a marriage and it's strong, don't make the mistake of, of realizing that there will be little whack-a-moles that will pop up of false teaching and beliefs and enticements to try to lead you astray. Robbing our contentment and robbing our fruitfulness and fulfilling the ministry that God calls us to. This is actually a consistent theme of warning people about words. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 3-4. through 4. Let me read it for you. I'm going to read these three different references. Paul says to Timothy, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound word of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, look at this, verse 4, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. And look at this, what? Controversy, and for he quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and suspiciousness. Now look over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Here's a spoiler alert for, for next week. Roman's going to be walking us through the end of this chapter as he gives us some more of these characteristics of, of those that are made unfit for ministry or unfruitful in ministry. It says, just that little phrase at the very end of 2.23, you know that they breed quarrels. It's what they do. You'll know them by their fruit, and here's their fruit. And then in Titus chapter 3, Our, all our little tea books there are together, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is condemned. So either Timothy and the church isn't taking that seriously or they've taken it seriously but these two men are still chipping away like gangrene on the congregation. There's two fruits that were mentioned. Did you see that? Two fruits. Fruit one is that they're made useless or no good for gospel purposes. They've spoiled their effectiveness. And fruit two is that they ruin those who listen. That saying, one bad apple ruins the whole bunch. That's what these two are doing. And, and Paul says to Timothy, you don't have one bad apple, you have two bad apples. And they're infecting it. So take it serious. Realize this is, this is serious. And what is the false teaching that they're doing? They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. Which is doing one of two things. Either A, it's, and what's it doing? It's disrupting the, the faith of many in the congregation. How would that impact the faith? If somebody said today, let's put our kind of imaginations on this, or just walk it through. If somebody said today that the resurrection of the body of Christ has already happened, how would that impact our church? Well, number one, it would make us look and say, wait a minute, I've trusted Christ. I know I'm in Christ. And if the resurrection already happened, and I'm not resurrected, bodily glorified 
I must not actually be a believer. Or secondly, it would make us look and say, well, I know I'm a believer, so the resurrection happened, and you know what? I do feel pretty good. I slept well last night. I did not, by the way. That's not true. But for our example's sake, you say, you know what? I feel, I feel pretty good. Oh, the, the resurrection happened. I've raised again. And the new heavens and new earth, what Jesus say in Mark 10, will neither be marrying or giving over in marriage? Sarah, we got to talk. It also looks and says, you know what? I, if I've experienced this resurrection, while it doesn't seem to be physical, my body still looks and feels the same. So if that's the case, Jesus, maybe Jesus didn't actually physically raise from the dead. Maybe he just spiritually rose from the dead, not physically. Do you see how such a teaching would be destructive and dangerous? When we celebrate the ordinances, it's a physical reality. Think about it. Peyton's baptism just a moment ago as we started our service. It's a declaration of belief that she has been united with Christ and she doesn't stay under the water. That would make for a disastrous baptism service. <laughs> she comes again. She raises up, raised to walk in newness of life because Jesus defeated death and he rose again to newness of life. And the confession that she's giving right there is, is what? One day my body may die, but I believe my body will physically raise again from the dead one day and I will be with my king, not only spiritually, but bodily. That's how the Lord made us, body and soul. At the end of our service, we're going to partake, after the sermon I should say, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we partake of it, we're celebrating the literal body of Christ that was broken for us the literal blood of Christ that was spilled for us, and that Christ offers us, and, and he tells us to come and to partake of his table, celebrating that one day we will eat and drink again with him in the new heavens and new earth. We will, we will be with the Lord again when he comes. One day this won't be us remembering Christ. This will be us looking at Christ with our senses just as real as the drink is and as real as the bread in that crunches in our teeth, we will be bodily with Christ. We will look at Him. We will laugh with Him. We will sing to Him. We will live for Him bodily with the physical, resurrected, glorified Christ. The local church matters. What we do matter when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we observe baptism, these ordinances of Christ, we celebrate the resurrected bodily King who says, I'm coming again soon. So take hope. So take hope. What do we do with this? How can we learn from these that are made useless for ministry and useless for doing the good works that the Lord has called them to do? Well, we see secondly, we learn that they will take their focus off of the essentials. Those that are made useless for ministry, these vessels, these bowls that are, that are not for noble purposes that the Lord calls us to, we see that they'll take their focus off the essentials, so we want to do the opposite. What I've done here is I've, I've labeled a number of different charges that Paul weaves to Timothy throughout this text. And I want to highlight them for you, so, so open your Bibles again. Keep them open there on verse 14. I've included them there. 
But just like an anchor that gets pulled up from a boat in the ocean, what's going to happen to the boat? It's going to drift, right? That's the warning that Paul gives to Timothy. He makes clear, listen, these people are made useless for ministry, but you better anchor down. So listen to the urgency. Listen to the urgency in Paul's warning to him. Verse 14. He says, remind them of these things. And do what? Charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words. Don't be like those others. Don't be like Hymenius and Philetus. Remind them, charge them. And down in verse 15, Timothy, do your best to do what? To present yourself to God as one approved. Meaning you step up and, and stand up. Don't be afraid. Sounds like Joshua, doesn't it? He says, for a worker has no need to be ashamed doing what? Rightly handling the word of truth. You handle God's word well. Handle it well. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. Don't get sucked into it, Timothy. Don't get sucked into it. Down in verse 18, after he name drops those individuals, he says in verse 18, what have they done? They have swerved from the truth. So if the warning is that they swerve from the truth, people that are made useless for ministry, they ultimately swerve from the word of God. What's the opposite assumption that Timothy is to do? Plant yourself in the word of God. They've swerved from the truth. Timothy, you don't swerve from the truth and don't let your, the churches swerve from the truth. Verse 19, but, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. And he finishes verse 19 and depart the, from iniquity. Depart from iniquity. The big idea being that Paul wants to make sure that Timothy stays focused and he takes this completely serious. I, I do want to actually give you a moment. I want you to, to mark this spot on your Bible because there's something incredible in the text that I'd be doing a disservice to you if we missed it before we go on to the, the, the big idea number two with this metaphor of a house. So in order to make this make sense, I've got to give you time to flip over there. So I want you to keep one finger on this spot and then I want you to open up to Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16. And it's kind of like right in the middle of your Bible. So if you kind of flip it open, you'll, you'll get Psalms and go a little bit further towards the back and you'll hit Isaiah. As you're flipping over there, what Paul does for us, what God's Word does for us, is he calls out these false teachers and then he gives us this, this statement written hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ is to bodily walk the earth. And he uses this language of foundation. So I'm not getting too confusing on this, but, but the Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. But in Jesus' day, they also had the Old Testament, which was written in Greek as well. It's called the Septuagint. And the only reason I say that is the same word that we have here for foundation Themelia, this foundation word, is used in Isaiah as well. And what I believe Paul is trying to do for Timothy is point out to him who Isaiah says the actual foundation is. With the application being, if you are one of those church members that's starting to get sucked into the false teaching of these two guys, you realize, oh, that's me. But the hope is, you can crawl back onto the foundation who is Christ, the cornerstone, and you're safe. 
So it's a warning that says, hey, you're drowning. But it's also an encouragement that says, but look, there's a foundation. Come on aboard. Get back on there. But look at this. I'll read again. Keep your, keep your spot on Isaiah 28, 16. Isaiah 28, 16. I'm going to read 2 Timothy 2, 19 at the very beginning while you look at Isaiah 28, 16. Paul says to Timothy, Nevertheless, or but, God's firm foundation stands firm. So in spite of all the false teaching, upon, upon all the wayward behavior and beliefs of the world, the foundation of God, it's unshaken. It stands firm. So as you look at life and the world seems to be just dissolving around us into chaos and confusion and seduction, Paul reminds Timothy, the foundation is secure. Not even feeling an ounce of a shake. So he quotes this, and now let's look at Isaiah 28.16, to which I believe he's intentionally referring. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay for the foundations, the Thamelia, that same word, behold, I lay for the foundations of Zion, a costly stone, a choice, a cornerstone, a precious stone for its foundation, the Melia, the plural form, its foundations. And he that believes on him shall by no means be ashamed. If you're in the church at Ephesus, and you hear Timothy reading these words, and you know you've been seducted to seduced into believing that the resurrection already happened, how would you feel as you stood there? You would feel what? Shame, wouldn't you? I'd feel so ashamed. What does Paul say? To those that believe in the cornerstone, the foundation, they will not be ashamed. So wherever you're at in life, come to the foundation. If you have shame as you sit here this morning, you come to the foundation. The one who takes away our shame. The one who rescued us. The one who is ours. The one that we're hidden in. Isn't the word of God amazing? This was written in Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ would come, and it's completely about him. And Paul uses it to encourage the church to say, you don't live in shame. You live on the foundation. So believe like it and be living like it. Our Lord is good, isn't he? Our Lord is good. And all the time? I knew somebody would get me. There we go. All right. So useless vessels will fail to fulfill the ministry before them. But secondly, my usefulness tomorrow, it will be decided today. My usefulness tomorrow, it will be decided today. He gives us this incredible metaphor. So what does a foundation have on it? It has a what? A house. Right? It has a structure. It has a building. And now we get into this application part. That's either going to, A, I asked you a question at the very beginning to be thinking about. Am I useful or do I seem to be useless as I look at this? And my ministry abilities. And so here's the question. I framed this first observation as a question. At this moment, which vessel do I most resemble? Look at verse 20. He says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels, like pots and different things like that, there's not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. 
So the picture is we have this great, incredible house on this perfect foundation. And in this foundation, there are vessels that are gold and silver, and they're valuable for special, valuable, good purposes. And then there's some vessels that are wood and clay, and those are used for trash or toiletry in the first century world. The question becomes, which one of those am I? Which one of those am I? I don't want us to get sucked into this question that I actually asked at the very beginning. Which one am I? What instead, what I want to do at this point is I want to ask you, which one do you want to be? Not which one am I anymore, but now which one do I want to be? Do I want to be the vessel for what God calls me to do? Do I want to be useless for it or do I want to be useful for it? What I want to give you an example of in just a moment is this principle, this fact that you and I will do things in our lives, we will make ourselves useful for people that we love. If we love someone, it will compel us to desire to make our lives useful to them. Now, God can use anybody. God could use Balaam's donkey, right? But if we love someone, it will compel us to change our lives and our beliefs and our practices in a way that our lives will be made useful for them. There's a picture up here. You may be familiar with Team Hoyt. Dick is the father. At the age of 22, with his wife, Dick had their son, Rick. And Rick was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, and he had cerebral palsy from that. Unable to communicate. Unable to move his body. Had no control over his muscles. At the age of 11, they were able to hook him up with this computer because he was able to move his eyes. That was it. And they were able to figure a way out for him to be able to communicate at the age of 11. And while he was in high school, one of his fellow high school students, who was a lacrosse player, became paralyzed. And so Rick asked his father, he said, Dad, I want to encourage this young man, my classmate, and let him know that life isn't over just because you're paralyzed. So I want to run this race. Can we run it together? And his father said, of course, he's 36 years old at this time. And so they run this race, and at the end of the race... Rick says to his father, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. For the first time in my life, it felt like I wasn't handicapped. The next day at school, Dick put, took one of his wheelchairs and filled it up with concrete. And he spent the whole day training. He was not a runner. He'd never run before. But because of his love for his son, he wanted his body that was useless for running, he wanted it to become useful for running because he wanted his son to not feel handicapped any longer. And so what that led to is beating his body in such a way for his son out of a love for his son that he would run 257 triathlons together. Six Ironman distance races. They ran the Boston Marathon 32 times They've run in 1,130 races and biked across America 3,735 miles in 45 days. Love will compel us to make ourselves useful. What God has done for us while we were yet sinners. John 3.16, For God so loved the world 
that he would give his only son, and who should ever believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, useful to us while we were yet haters of him. Would you pray that God would make your love for him expand? Church family, you make my desire to be useful for my king greater. You spur me on to love and good deeds. That's what the church is to do. I pray that that's the case for you as well. As we look to verse 21, at this moment, here's this great news, at this moment, it's not too late to be cleansed and consecrated for our owner. Look what he says. Therefore, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is therefore because here's what you do now. Therefore, if anyone, 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 they've been stuck in false teaching or they find themselves not very useful for ministry, he says anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Ready for every good work. I believe the application is twofold. Individually and corporately as a church. Individually, here it is. There's areas in your life as you've listened to this text that you know they're impacting your ability to live in a way that is useful for ministry, to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. You look at your life, you look at your heart, and you say, you know what, I, I need to do business with, I need to talk to God about this. Then do it. Confess it, be made, cleanse, cleanse himself, confess it to the Lord, and you will be ready for every good work. And the application for Timothy also is as a church. The immediate application for Timothy as a church family is this. You've got these two jokers over here that are causing trouble. Cleanse yourself from them. Exercise church discipline on them. Kick them out of the fellowship. Rebuke them so that your church will be made ready for every good work. The application in our lives is incredibly clear. We're called to be, what's he say? Set apart. Our lives are not supposed to be the same as everyone else's lives. We have a different foundation. But our foundation is perfect and pure. Our king loves us. He adopts us. But he calls us to be ready for every good work. To be making disciples for Jesus Christ. Our next steps. Our next steps. I phrased it in a little confusing way. And it's not just because I couldn't think of what to put up here. Our next steps. I know what they are for me. And I don't have to be alone in taking them. My assumption is that you as well, looking at this text, you know what the next steps are that the Lord wants you to take. But the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to put His finger on the different areas of our life. And He says, ah, that, no, 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 no. Not like that anymore, like this now. So the next steps is this. Whatever you are convicted by the word of God to say, you know what, no, this is my next steps. I need to repent to that person. I need to confess to them a sin. I need to confess to the Lord the sin in my life. You take those next steps. And you realize you don't do them alone, but we're able to do them as a body of Christ. To encourage each other, to hold each other accountable, to run with and after our Lord. The process of discipleship, as our men come forward, 
as we get ready to observe the Lord's Supper. This is our next step as a church. The last Sunday of every month, we absorb the Lord's Supper. We take time out of our schedules. We take time out of how we normally would prepare the service. And we say, this is vital. This is what our King caused us to do. And in the Lord's Supper, we have both of these elements met. Every one of us wants to be around and experience things that cause us to say, wow. Wow. Did you see that? Wow. Did you hear that? We come to the God of creation, the God who knit you together in your mother's womb, the very elements that make you say, whoa, are the elements that make us say, wow. At the cross, the holiness of God is demonstrated that God can't just allow us into his presence. A sacrifice must be paid. And only our king was able to pay it. It's only Jesus, only Jesus, who was qualified to have his blood spilt and his body broken to bring us as a people for his own possessions from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The wow of God leads us to the woe, woe of God. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper in just a moment, this is for anyone who has confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you are Christ's, this is our time as a body to look back at what Christ has done to look around at our brothers and sisters who have been purchased with us, to look around and be able to encourage them in their lives, to be useful for ministry, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But it's also a future picture to say, Lord, one day, yes, now I do this in remembrance, but one day I'll do this in your presence. So let me pray for us before we pass out our elements of the bread and the cup. They're actually together. You'll see two cups. Technology is amazing. And we'll take those two cups and I'll read a portion of 1 Corinthians 11 and we'll partake them together as a body. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you, that, Father, that you would love us so much we were yet sinners against you. Christ would come. You would send your son who would take on the fullness of man. He would take on flesh. He would live a sinless life. He would lay his life down for us on the cross. And we thank you, God, that, that, that he gave us these commands to observe of, of baptism as your disciples. And he also gave us this command to observe, to partake of this supper, that you have reinstituted this Passover meal for us to be able to celebrate the coming of Christ and the future coming again of him. We love you, and we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, everyone said together, amen.